This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. After the Italian armistice of 1943, Eric Newby escaped from the prison camp in which he'd been held for a year. A local woman named Wanda, her family, and other anti-fascist sympathizers helped him evade the German army by hiding, feeding, and supporting him in the caves and forests of the Apennine Mountains. Joining me today to talk about Newby's love and war in the Apennines is James March, who has written for publications like Condé Nast Traveler, The Washington Post, and The Telegraph. So now, here is Love and War in the Apennines. Well, James, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jeremy. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm humbled that you choose to have me on. So you're a freelance travel writer based in Birmingham, Birmingham, as we say, uh, in the United <laughs> yeah. States. Uh, you've uh, written for publications like uh, The Washington Post and The Telegraph and Lonely Planet. And we actually connected on social media a few months back, and you recommended that we read and talk about Love and War in the Apennines by Eric Newby. And so, um, you know, just to start off the conversation, uh, could you talk about like what drew you to Newby? Why did you want to read and talk about uh, Newby's work? Um, it's truth be told, I didn't know a whole lot about um, Eric Newby until fairly recently, until we um, connected. Um, and obviously, a short walk in the Hindu Kush is his most well-known work. Um, but uh, Love and War in the Apennines, really, um, it's not a particularly uh, conventional travel book. It's, um, it's a true story, albeit written 28 years after the event took place, which is a, a bit of a travel writing trope in itself. But um, it, <laughs> the story sounded really fascinating. And um, he's one of those famous writers who... I, as a you know aspiring sort of coming up travel writer myself i really need to read a lot more of and i'd like to know a lot more about the guy and his style of writing his prose and his story and this story in particular um which was written in 1971 um has really kind of captured the imagination a little bit um and uh, i found it to be something i thought i'd really enjoy reading and i did and i hope you enjoyed it too Oh yeah, no, I did. Um, Aaron Miller and I spoke about Newby and his context and his book, A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush, uh, just a few episodes back. So I recommend uh, the listeners to go back and listen to that episode too. Uh, but this one, uh, this story, Love and War in the Apennines, is essentially the story um, of his capture and his experience as a prisoner of war and an escapee in Italy in 1942 and 1943. And you'd mentioned that he wrote this 28 years later. Um, but I don't know what version of the book that you have, but in mine, there's a, a preface in which Newby writes that when he was recaptured and taken to Czech Czechoslovakia, that's where he started to jot these notes down that would essentially mm. become this book. So he said the first draft of the book he, he essentially wrote in 1944. So mm. perhaps that's the reason why a lot of the, the accounts and uh, the descriptions in this book are so vivid and they, they, they feel a lot closer than 28 years later. 
Yeah, of course. And he, uh, you know, he also says, particularly during the initial bit where he was captured, he writes it's uh, something, as most people who have been captured would agree, it's such a disagreeable experience that one remembers the circumstances for the rest of one's life. Right. Um, and you, <laughs> you can't disagree with that too much. Um, but yeah, as you say, he made notes and the descriptions are, are really rich. Um his writing style and uh i mean he also explains in that press that same preface that you know the reason he took so long to write the book was that not long after the war finished a lot of similar books were released about you know prison camp escapes and daring escapes and uh that sort of thing that he felt it would be you know not a bit just following the herd really doing another of those type of books um but he came to realize a little later well, a few years later, in fact, um, that not a lot had been written about the ordinary Italian people who helped the prisoners of war at such huge personal risk um, to themselves. And they knew that, it, you know, what the consequences might be should they be found you know, helping someone out. And I thought that was quite nice that he decided to highlight those people that he felt hadn't been, hadn't been covered uh, in that whole, in that, in, you know, 30 years after that. Right, yeah. You'd mentioned that you liked it and said that you hope I did too. And after kind of reading, I first read the Hindu, A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush, and then I read this. And um, I was kind of hard, I think, on A Short Walk. I didn't like it very much. But after reading this, I mean, he's he's redeemed himself, not just because (laughs) of how, how wonderful his story is, but, you know, he's, as you say, this book is as much about his story as it is about all of the kind of wonderful Italian sympathizers and, 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 and people along the way. I mean, there's so many characters in this book and he, and of course the woman that would become his wife, um, you know, play a a very important role in the story. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's clearly a nice guy (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and that comes, that, that comes through in his writing and he, you know, he doesn't, he's frankly doesn't really earn and do a lot to earn the trust of these people. You know, he's, he's a prisoner of war and he escapes prison. He doesn't really, he can't really ask for a lot. His Italian isn't very good. I mean, he's just a young guy trying to hide from the Italian fascists and the Germans um, in what's quite a remote wilderness, really. Um, So obviously his character and his personality were, you know, key to uh, earning the trust of those people who, you know, as I said earlier, had did it hid him in barns and haystacks and all these sort of places at huge personal risk had they been found, you know, to be uh, to be hiding a British prisoner of war. Right. So let's um let's let's kind of walk through the the plot here and, and we'll just begin by saying he's captured, I think, in nineteen forty two. And in, in the fall, yeah. maybe August or September nineteen forty two. He's captured, and chapter one is just this really gripping account of of his capture, and then chapter two mm. picks up a year later. So he's effectively um, a prisoner of war for an entire year, and this book, a bulk of this book, comprises of uh, I don't know from September of nineteen forty three until uh, December nineteen forty three. So only a few short months mm. here, um, but that first mm. chapter deals with that special operations mission that that got him captured in the first place. 
Do you, do you remember if, yeah. if that like pulled you in as much as it did to me? Yeah. In fact, I remember um, you and Aaron were talking about this in your uh, discussion about the Hindu Kush because it was actually quite a, uh, a daring mission. I mean, he was part of, I think he was a special forces unit he was part of. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, he takes part in Operation Why Not, which <laughs> frankly... Which, yeah, which frankly it seemed uh, it seemed pretty difficult from his description, and it was also it was quite last minute too, and there's a quite a lack of planning, and he had these last minute aerial photographs that he had to view in while he was in the submarine. Um, it was a, it seemed like a bit of a bungled operation really, and um, ended up being a failure because he obviously didn't return to his submarine and he got captured, and uh, yeah, like you said, he ended up in this in this prison and. Uh, it's quite a traumatic period of his life, really. Yeah, that 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 whole chapter it just seems like so funny. Like here, here's a group of soldiers, you know, in a submarine, and they they get the photographs as you mentioned, and then they they realize that what they're going to do is they're going to get out of the submarine, get some canoes or some inflatable rafts or something, and you know, storm yeah. storm a beach in Sicily and sabotage some German fighter planes on an airfield right yeah and then swim yeah. back to the submarine and, and take off but <laughs> they get caught you know in the middle of the airfield and somehow make it back to the yeah. beach <laughs> right yeah I, I don't know how i really don't it, it, you know it was it, they make it to the airfield and all of a sudden the bright flashlights come on they hear the you know stomping of the soldier's feet and uh, the, the shouts it seems it, it just seems as if he's uh there's no way they're going to escape but they somehow do and um i mean there's one funny scene where he arrives on the beach and he he, he thinks he hears the marching boots of soldiers um <laughs> but it's, it's actually it's actually a horse munching on some grass Right, and, <laughs> and he says uh, how stupid he felt, um, and that kind of scene encapsulates, you know, the the mission itself, really. Yeah, know, that's it. and yeah, like you say, he ends up getting uh, getting caught by some Italian fishermen. Right, and floating, bobbing in the Mediterranean for five hours, waiting for the submarine to, you know, mm. poke up from the water, and that doesn't happen. And just floating there in the water for five hours must have been terrifying you know in the early hours of the morning and some mm-hmm. sicilian fishermen reeled them in and um chapter two yeah. a year later we're in the pow camp that's right yeah i mean it's it's quite a tough time in his life i mean but it at the same time he also there's one interesting section where he talks about how free he felt that period of time um, oh, right right because um he felt it was weird because obviously in a prison is not particularly a nice experience, but he also felt very free because he was relieved of the usual kind of stresses and pressures of life. He didn't have any big decisions to make, you know, everything was brought for him. The food wasn't too bad. You know, he was with his other British inmates. He could talk and yeah, the, the, the the whole uh, concept of freedom there I felt was really unique, quite unique mission from him. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's also, that, I think around the same passage where he talks about the freedom that he had and, you know, freedom from responsibility and worries and cares in, in jail was around the same time, in, in the POW camp, was around the same time where he, I think, was describing it as um, a public school. Do you remember? Um, for, yeah. For the American listeners, that's basically a private school, so like upper crust type students. So he, he yeah, likens it to like a you know, this really kind of elite <laughs> experience, mm. right? 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's from Westminster himself, which is a pretty obviously up upmarket area of London. But he never felt like he uh, quite fitted in with those people. He felt like a bit of a, a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. I think he describes them as okay people, uh, which <laughs> to me, which. I don't know if that's an archaic reference or not. I didn't quite understand what he meant by that specific reference, but I kind of knew who he meant, if that makes sense. Uh. I kind of knew who he was talking about. Um, and he, but yeah, he says he doesn't really fit in too well with, with those and perhaps he felt a little alienated. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about the okay thing. Um, I thought that was, I don't know, tongue-in-cheek reference to the in crowd or, or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, like, you know, in this prisoner of war camp, the day before the armistice is announced, I don't know what he was doing. He was goofing off in the stairwell or something. He tumbled down the stairs in in these new boots that he got and shattered his ankle, (laughs) right? I mean, he didn't know it was the day before the armistice. No, um, no. It was was an entire flight of stairs, of marble stairs, in fact, as he... uh, yeah, as he says, and um, yeah, that obviously would. When the armistice did happen, that hindered him quite a lot um, in terms of being out in the open. Um, and I don't want to get jumped too far ahead, but yeah, that was one of the reasons he ended up back in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that's where his relationship with Wanda um, really started to form and formulate. When the armistice was announced, there was this weird period where nobody knew what to do and all of a sudden their their enemies the the italians became their friends and there's this weird part where he mentions that you know very rapid shift from enemy to to friend but they were left hanging all the prisoners of war were left hanging in this was essentially orphanage this old um orphanage prisoner of war camp and no one knew what they were going to do, and they were afraid that the Germans would come in and swoop them, you know, over to the Alps or something. And so the pr- prisoners one day, I guess, decide to to get up and hightail out of there into the forest. But he has a broken ankle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the you know, all, all hostilities between Italy and the Allies ceased at that point, um, which obviously the Germans weren't too happy about. But they didn't know how soon Allied help would come. You know, they had no idea. And one of the things that sticks out in this book is the lack of communication, really, at that, in that time period. Um, so they had no choice, really, but to escape and try and hide from the Germans as best they could. But at the same time, with the ordinary people themselves, there was declining support for the war at this time period. There was a lack of food and fuel was demoralizing the population um so it it wasn't like they were going into a completely hostile environment um but the lack of direction really was quite stark yeah like they didn't really know what to do or where to go it was Mm -hmm. quite um quite striking and yeah and imagine being in that situation and, and you're the one with a broken ankle and you're in a platoon of basically soldiers trying to escape and you're the one that's holding everyone back and i think they because of the ankle i think they even come to the decision that he needs medical treatment he can't he can't ride with the pack he needs to go back to the hospital that you mentioned yeah yeah i mean yeah he he comes to realize that he's got no chance of escaping the germans or the italian fascists with that injury i mean it's just 
mm-hmm. not going to happen. He, he did. He, I don't think he wants to go to the hospital, but he kind of realizes that, okay, this is what's going to have to have to happen. Yeah. And if it sounds heavy, it, it is, it is a heavy story, but I mean, what I guess we're not communicating very well and it's kind of hard for us to do this is, you know, how, how funny he makes everything uh, seem like he, when he escapes, they put him on a pony, right? And oh, God, yeah. Like a small horse that catapults him. <laughs> and yeah. these just is a funny kind of scenes. Uh, it's very, very serious subject, but, you know, written in a, I think, a very lighthearted and um, accessible way. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it's is a heavy subject, of course. Um, but I, I, I still love his writing style, you know. I mean, he's a, it's really like kind of tongue in cheek. It's uh, it's self deprecating too, you know. It's never biting or malicious, and uh, it's he's happy to like you know, happy to like sort of play the fool, if you will. And a lot of these um, little incidents that sort of colour what's quite a dark period of his life, or what at least must have been for a long time. Looking back, and his uh, his writing style, I, I I really enjoyed it. I really thought it was um, brought a lot of colour and a lot of humour to what was quite a difficult situation. And, and, and also when he was in the, the hospital, you know, getting treat, treated for his ankle, uh, you know, he's in secret communications with Wanda and, and letters. And, um, you know, there's the jokes that uh, he plays on the guards. He pretends to have diarrhea so he can <laughs> go to the bathroom and uh, yeah. which he actually uses to, um, to escape, uh, he goes out of the bathroom window and, and escapes uh, with Wanda's help. Um, yeah. And as he escapes out of the window, he runs into a field and he's picked up by the doctor and Wanda's dad, and then you know taken off closer to the mountains, right? And I think the prisoner of war camp was somewhere near Parma. I, I didn't quite get where the hospital was, but I gather it's in the same mm. general area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Wanda's father and the the doctor who helped him, you know, they, that was a huge personal risk to them. And, uh, you know, for, if either of them had been caught at that, at that particular time, it was possible they'd have been shot. Um, so it was hugely daring and dangerous for them to come out and help them. Uh, yeah, you're right about, you know, the personal risk. I mean, that's something that we see throughout the entire book. It, either the people that take him in are scared and ask him to leave, which of course he does without, without question. But then there's a sense where mm. he, he really takes a liking to the people that are taking him in and he wants to leave as to not pose a threat to them or their families. So he's bouncing yeah. around from village to village to, you know, little shack to cave, you know, just trying to, to constantly move and, and not, harm any of the people that are trying to help him one of the reasons is her father helped him out and a lot of the other villagers and mountain people do as well because it's because they hate the fascists they hate you know they've got a real desire to see the war ended um and if they can sort of get one over so to speak um about you know against the germans against the italian fascists then it's a risk that some of them are willing to take and yeah like you said he bounces around from house to house. Not every house will have him, um, which obviously is understandable. But there's a section in chapter eight where he reveals um, the money that was on offer if anyone was to denounce him. Um, and it's revealed it's 
1800 lira, which was obviously was a lot of money back in 1943 in Italy. So you, you can understand why perhaps not everyone would want to have him and, you know, my, may also look into see that money as a bit of a carrot, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, at that point, uh, he decides to leave the person that was taking him in and he goes and arranges somehow, um, I think with that person's help, to stay with a guy named Luigi and his family further in the mountains. And I think he has a, a daughter and, um, you know, a vicious dog named Nero. <laughs> um, and, and he actually uh, takes him in. Uh, but Newby mentioned something to the effect of wanting to earn his keep or wanting to not just uh, you know leech off of the generosity of these people, but he wanted to, to work or to do something manually um, mm. to give back to the community. And the only place that he could have done that was, you know, in a remote part of the mountain. So he goes and stays with Luigi and his family where he's sent to work clearing massive boulders out of a field. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does mention throughout that he has these occasional kind of feelings of guilt, you know, that these people are helping him and he really wants to do something for them. But he ends up doing this. I mean, it's a really monotonous task. It's he's yeah, he's clearing a field of stones and throwing them off a cliff, you know, all day, every day. But it does give him a sense of you know he's at least doing something, which I think, uh, which I think he you know he really, really liked that. And it, like like I said, he does say the job's pretty boring, but doing that gave him you know a sense of helping somewhat. Mm-hmm contribution and yeah he comes to realize too as well the fact that um i think he had a bit of a i guess a stereotypical idea of what you know these rural italian people are like but he comes to realize too that these people aren't lazy at all you know i think that he had that idea in his head perhaps um you know they take siestas during the day and this sort of thing um but what the reality is is that they're fighting to survive in what's been incredibly inhospitable terrain. I think that was quite quite striking. I mean, he also talks about how many of them even move away from this area of Italy, either to the city or they emigrate to America or South America. And I think he gains a real respect for what they are and where they live and how they live their life, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone in the family has their own little job to do and um, it's, it's quite idyllic in, in some ways, the way he, he refers to, you know, there's a, a nice chapter where he talks about, you know, daily life and what it was like and the types of food that they ate and what their routine was. And uh, he talked about the interest of the girls and they had their dream interpretation book, right, which they were fascinating yeah. with, fascinated with. Uh, but there's that also very curious scene where he, he had Sundays off, apparently, and then he on one Sunday just decided to to go hiking and he found this little spot on a ridge and took a nap and he woke up to a German soldier. Just a quick note and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is one. This is one of the key scenes of the book, really, um, yeah. where he meets 
he meets the German soldier. I don't know what he expected really when he woke up, you know, bleary eyed, looking at a, a German soldier standing over him. Um, but it, <laughs> the reaction wasn't what he expected. Um, you know, the German soldier says, uh, "Buongiorno" to him, like "Good day." Um, and he, and you know, yeah, yeah they end up having. Anything. Quite, yeah, yeah, he didn't. He didn't say. I think he was so shocked, really. <laughs> um, um, but the soldier ends up being a really nice guy, and they're similar age. They, I think, they look fairly similar. The officer himself was out catching butterflies or something. I think he's really interested in science. And they, yeah, they end up sharing a beer together. Um, and it, I think that scene really shows that um, not all the Nazis were these kind of cold, emotionless robots that we often see depicted in TV shows and movies and all this. It reminded me a little bit of the, uh, the famous Christmas truce in World War One oh, right. in December 19th. December 1914, where the soldiers uh, from the British and the German side got together and sang carols. And this is sort of a, a very kind of condensed micro level um, we're talking about here. But they got together and played football and sang Christmas carols together. Um, and it was just, it was, it was really quite nice. I, I, I really, I really liked that scene. Um, and there was another poignant section where he, uh, the German soldier, talks about how much he dislikes the war. Um, and also how much he hates being hated just for being German. Mm. I thought that was um, quite a poignant moment too. Um, you know, he perhaps had other interests. He, you know, obviously was interested in science. You know, the war and Hitler and those decisions weren't something that defined him, um, and yet he was hated just for being born in Germany, essentially. Right, and the disillusionment was on all sides. And I think he even mentioned, um, as he pulled two beers out of his bag and gave one to to newbie to share, um, he even mentioned that he was teaching Renaissance or you know art history or something. And he's just so kind of jaded and upset with everything. He's like, "What the hell am I doing teaching this subject? Like, I'm a, I'm a scientist. I like yeah. bugs. I like to capture bugs." Yeah, yeah. Um, but he also gives a newbie his word that, you know, he's not going to say anything, right? And so I, I thought that was a very, as you mentioned, a very mm. kind of important moment uh, in in this. Even though nothing comes of it, right? It's just a very important scene that shows that uh, you know that there's a shared humanity and shared disillusionment, right? There's mm. a special connection. Yeah, I mean, we see humanity throughout the book, um, especially with you know the, the Italian on the Italian side. The, Italian peasants, the mountain people, what you need to call them. Um, it, but to see that come through um, from the Nazi side as well was really interesting. And I don't know if that an encounter really gave maybe confidence that he might escape. I don't know if it did, but it was. It must have. It must have. It must have helped him in one way or another. I imagine, um, or at least pleased him a little bit that that experience happened, um, and it was. It was really, yeah, I think that was a really poignant scene in the book. I was just, as a side note here, I wonder, um, I didn't keep tabs on this, but when I reread it, I'm going to. I wonder how many times in the book, Newbie just opens his eyes and somebody's looking at him. <laughs> like, he goes to sleep somewhere in the woods and he opens his eyes and somebody is there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Marching over him. Uh, the German, Luigi, uh, doctor, you know, many times throughout yeah. the book this happens. It's funny. 
Yeah, I think he must have lost track of time at, at some point. I don't even know if he had to give a watch. I'm not sure that he had a watch. He he. So later in the story, he meets a group of people who end up constructing like this little hut slash cave type thing in which he was going to overwinter. So this is now late October, early November or so, and there's this you know, group of people that build him this hut, and th- every day they go and drop supplies off, and one day he had a, I think, meeting scheduled uh, with Wanda, and during the morning, the uh, person, when they were dropping off su- supplies, gave him a, a wristwatch. I think that was... Right. His, uh, and also, I guess, another time when he was in, in the ditch uh, earlier in the book. He was in that little grave, <laughs> um, but yeah. So I don't think he had owned one, but people lent him watches from time to time. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I think it's also important to point out how often he references um, the coming winter. It, it seems to be constantly pointed out almost every chapter um, at this point um, to watch out for the snow. You know, when the snow comes, that's when you're really in trouble. Um, so I think even if he wasn't aware of too much of time during every particular day, he's always aware that it's getting slowly and slowly more cold. Um, and when the snow does come, he's going to really struggle to you know, sleep out in the open or sleep wherever he is. Um, and with the trees, he's going to, uh, will be bare as well. So he'll be easy to spot. Right. But also maybe that as a, as a larger metaphor, not just of his uh, recapture, which that ends up happening, but also with the fact that in Italy, there's essentially a German puppet state until May 1945. So even if he did kind of hold out there in his little hut, he would have been doing that for at least another year, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, we don't know what, well, it's easy to say with hindsight, we know what happens. Um, but at the time, he had very little idea of what the Allies were doing. He didn't know if they were going to come soon if i mean there's one reference where he talks about there might be a landing in march i mean mm-hmm. but when he was in these mountains this was september october that's months away um so yeah he has absolutely no idea when he's going to get any help and he's in this puppet state where obviously he's been searched for um so he doesn't really know what's going to happen um but yeah like you said it, it doesn't look good for him let's put it that way mm-hmm and all the while, he's still in contact with with Wanda. I thought she would, you know, figure more prominently in this book. Uh, but and she, you know, she's a thread mm. that holds it together. Uh, you know, but she pops in and out from time to time. She sends little letters, and he meets her only a handful of times, no more than that. Um, but I was surprised that she didn't figure more prominently. Uh, number one and number two, I was surprised that you know he's playing grab ass with Dolores. <laughs> That, that little yeah, thing. I mean, yeah, I, I must, I must admit, considering that I don't know what copy of the book you have, but considering that she was on the front cover of my book, I really thought yeah, we'd see yeah. more of her. We'd see more of her in the book. Um, but as you say, yeah, she pops in and out of of scenes. Um, it, again, like you, you see how tough communication was back then. Um, but he uh, ends up having a, a little fling with one of the girls in the mountain, um, they end up rolling around in some hay, um, but not much comes of it. I think Wanda sort of finds out that that's what was <laughs> happening. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, but Wanda, she does seem 
pretty feisty. She knows what she wants. She's a, a virulent anti-fascist, um, and she obviously has deep affection for newbie. Um, and it, the scenes that she uh, she's in it, they're great. Um, but like you say, they're strangely uh, few and far between. Yeah, which which you know might belie you know how important and pivotal she was to his escape. Um, not his recapture, but his escape. I mean, I mean that had to have been so so formative for him and important that you know this young girl with whom he was kissing in in the hospital, right? Uh, um, you know, having a good time with, uh, but she was risking her life to help him out. And so, even though that she's you know she's not everywhere throughout the book, I mean, she's so important to this to this story. Yeah, I think I think that comes from her father too. Um, so her father, that to have some family background, their family is actually Slovenian, and but her father's multilingual, and he's a a huge anti-fascist as well. That's why he, he one of the reasons he helps uh, newbie in the first place. But like I say, yeah, she's a massive source of inspiration for him. Um, she ends up earlier in the book. She ends up teaching him some basic Italian. She. Uh, I think she expects some English lessons back and he didn't do very well. Um, <laughs> she ends she ends up getting uh, quite exasperated with his um, lack of uh, Italian skill. Um, but from that early meeting, it's obvious that she, uh, you know, they've got a real bond. Yeah. Um, and she ends up doing everything she can at personal risk to help him, um, which I'm sure he was hugely thankful for later on. Mm-hmm. But it's all for for not because uh, he leaves the cave uh, and he goes across the mountains where he's um, he gets tipped off by Wanda that there's a, another prisoner of war escapee on the other side of the mountains, a guy named James, and uh, he decides to leave the cabin and to to go across the mountains and try to find him and. He does, and mm. it's not much longer after that that they uh, they get caught, and it was just a bit anticlimactic that that moment, <laughs> right? They they didn't know yeah. where they were going. It was kind of like you know they're, they're fumbling in the dark here, um, and then they just get denounced and captured on December twenty nine. Yeah, it, I think you mentioned this when you were talking about um, a short walk. It was quite an abrupt ending. Um, mm. in that book and, it, and it, you know, I haven't read that book but I, I intend to but I found this is a very abrupt ending too I mean the, the, the book was obviously coming to an end and I was wondering what, what on earth was going to happen um, but it, it does the, the ending does certainly um, it, it fizzles away um, they're stuck in the mountains um, and then all of a sudden yeah they're captured by a fascist militia um, I quite like the bit where he said that they looked very evil. <laughs> he kind of like looked as if he, he knew that this is the end because they looked as evil as he is, as he expected them to, um, which I found quite amusing in a, in a, in a dark sort of comedy way. Um, but yeah, it was an abrupt ending. Um, and I was quite, was quite shocked by that. The, the book just ended in him getting taken down the mountains and driven away and that was it and yeah. how, how did you how did you feel about that those were the last words right driven away you know I, yeah i i found the book so strong and gripping for for most of it and uh, i was a bit let down but somehow 
you know, that kind of makes sense. Like if, if you're a prisoner of war, you have this, you know, adrenaline, you have this existence of, you know, peak experiences and adrenaline pumping, you know, almost constantly, I would imagine. And then when you surrender, you're, you're captured, you just, mm. you just give up. And I mean, there's nothing more to do at that point. They're exhausted. They're fatigued. It's, you know, the winter, it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. That's the he end. Did men- yeah. yeah. He did, he did mention earlier in the, and a little early in the book that um, his spirit had been broken. There was something in him that just went while he, I think he was, it was not long before he got captured. And perhaps that kind of sums it up a little bit. Although in the epilogue he talks about, he goes back to the mountains a few years later and he, I think he has the opportunity to know or to find out who it was that denounced him. Um, and he just says, no, he, you know, that was, it's gone now. He doesn't, he doesn't particularly want to know who that person was. It was not a very nice period of his life. And that felt like more of an ending to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also his l- little plug there for another book uh, that describes the uh, life with Wanda uh, is another book that he wrote called something wholesale, which I haven't mm-hmm. yet read, but now I was like, okay, that's, <laughs> that was the story I was thinking that I was going going to get in this book (laughs) yeah um but that's interesting yeah i mean somehow like it it feels it feels right uh, despite it being so abrupt (laughs) yeah i yeah i think um i I, yeah i I really enjoyed the book um it was a a fascinating story it just um it was a shame the end on this on that particular note um obviously obviously he survived the war um but i but then again I'm not sure what I expected from, you know, this crazy sort of few months he spent up in, up in the mountains getting helped by these like wonderful people. I don't know what I would have, would have wanted to happen there. I wish I would have read this book first um, because I think it would have given a lot more context to a short walk in the Hindu Kush in terms of, you know, what's so damn funny about that book. Um, you know, because as we talked about in the other podcast, Aaron and I, they have this kind of like bumbling about idiot abroad quality to er- Eric Newby and his hiking partner uh, that you don't get a sense of like why that's so funny um, when when Thesiger calls them a bunch of pansies at the end of the book. Like, OK, but th- this book kind of illustrates, you know, the reality that the image or the illusion that he's trying to paint in a short walk that, you know, he's ill-equipped or he's not cut out or he's in Thesiger's words, a pansy. Um, it's just not true. I mean, he's, 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 he's a tough guy that had these, you know, very difficult experiences as a prisoner of war. I mean, he's, he's, he's not a, he's not a wuss, right? No, no. Um, perhaps that's one of the reasons why he was inspired to write this book. You know, <laughs> perhaps someone had told him passing about, that ending or you know they'd had a conversation much like you and Aaron had about the reference to being a pansy I mean <laughs> like you said he clearly isn't you know so he wrote this book 15 years later um after a short walk I think it was and um yeah obviously as we know he's clearly not um a weak guy I mean anyone who goes through what he went through um including getting captured obviously there's a a real spirit um and a real toughness to them and um what I like about it is that he mixes that kind of gritty 
toughness um, with some real kind of self-deprecating humor as well. Um, I think that's one of the reasons yeah. this book's so well-known, so famous, and um, why Newby's such a loved writer. It, it certainly inspired me to read a lot more of his work, um, though I can't imagine it'll be quite as uh, hard-going as this one. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's a good point to make and, and an excellent one, you know, to close out the the show with. Before we do that, do you want to let us know, like, where we can track you down online and all those those details? Yeah, um, so you can follow me on Twitter at jmarchtravel. Um, it's the same on Instagram, too. Um, I'm not a huge uh, tweeter, so to speak, but I do talk about travel on there from time to time. These people who tweet every day, how do they have so many opinions? You know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, I really, where do you get all these opinions from constantly? You know, um, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm not so much inclined that way, but I, yeah, I do um, tweet from time to time on there. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Okay. And your, and, uh, your website? Yeah, it's uh, just jamesmarstravel.com. Um, and that's, you can find some links to my work there. And I'm a photographer too. Um, so I've got some stuff on there, some of my travel work. Um, a lot of it isn't particularly recent um, for obvious reasons. Um, so I haven't been doing much travel lately, but hopefully that section will be updated uh, fairly soon. Um, once we're allowed to travel again, fingers yeah. crossed, hopefully soon. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for recommending this book. I mean, it was, uh, it was good. Uh, newbie redeemed mm. himself <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't aware you felt that way so much about uh, the short walk no I thought I, I uh, you know communicated that my, my uh, distaste for that but I, I, yeah well, <laughs> the cat's out of the bag now yeah absolutely alright uh, thanks a lot for talking to me uh, Jeremy I really appreciate it you can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.